not working okay. Morning everyone. It's good to see you all. Hope you all had a great uh, day yesterday. And I'm really grateful to be here this morning and share God's word with you. I think it's been about a year since I've done this. So I'm feeling suitably nervous, so please bear with me. And uh, I've really enjoyed the Advent season over the last few weeks. And when Andrew spoke a couple of weeks ago, one of the things he reminded us was that the birth of Jesus had signified that, that God had broken into human history to exercise his redemptive will. I mean, you really ponder that, that that's an amazing reality. You know, and it really reminds us that our, our God is a God who seeks us out. We don't need to go looking for him. He came to find us. So he took the flesh, he walked among us, and he embraced the cross so that we would be reconciled to him, by him. I mean, you sit and think that through, it's such an amazing reality. <coughs> but I'm going to change focus this morning. I wanted to look at the topics of mission and discipleship. And to be specific, to look at how that aspect of Christian life will be relevant for us individually and as a church as we get into 2022, particularly with Ridray in mind. So I don't know if I've got the time frame right, but about three years ago, me and Mark spent a Saturday night in this room and we were archiving old correspondence for the church. And I mean, the carpet was full of old letters. Uh, it was just a nightmare to wade through it all. And, and something like that is pretty tedious. You know, it's not an enjoyable task, but, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing it. And one of the reasons was, you get a real sense of uh, the history of the church through doing that. We're reading these old letters written a long time ago. You get a feeling for the characters involved in the church, what was happening. And you just had a real, not only a sense of the human activity in the church, but also God's hand in the church and what came before us. So it was quite a an enjoyable experience, albeit hard work. I think a lot of it's up in the, the loft. More recently, I met with, with Margaret Dunbar a couple of weeks ago, and she said something to me that really stuck with me. She said that DBC had been the manuscript of her life. And that just really touched us. And I think what she meant by that was that the church had moulded her and shaped her as a person. And in some ways, her own personal history was also the history of the church. They were entwined and inseparable. So the reason I say all that is because I think next year will be a historically defining in a moment of this church. I really, really do. And it's tremendously exciting to think about what God has in store for us, both as individuals, but as, as a church as well in the weeks and the months and the years that lie ahead. As we look to expand his kingdom in the east end of the city, and so I firmly believe that next year we'll, leave a, we'll have a, a lasting legacy in the life of this church. Not only in the life of our church, but also in our own per, personal manuscripts. That will leave an imprint in our hearts as individuals. And that's something really to rejoice about. And one day when none of us are here, many, many years from now, there'll be somebody reading about what occurred in these days. And they'll be encouraged, just like Mark and I were that Saturday night, They'll read about what happened and what went on, and they'll know that God was with us in these days. But crucially, that will mean they know that God is with them and, and the days that lie ahead. So, in light of all this, I wanted to share for Luke 9 and 10 this morning, which is concerned with the multiplication of mission. There's a lot of uh, text to wade through, I won't be able to touch on all of it, but uh, I think it's important to do it. And chapter 9 to 10 of Luke, I'll refer to what is called an inclusio. So if you don't know what that is, because I had no idea, it's a literary device that sandwiches an important theme 
a topic between two sections of scripture that have got similar material. So it's emphasising something to us. So looking at the beginning of 9, uh, and we look at the beginning of Luke 10, we see the inclusion in question. So I'm going to read it out and highlight to you how, how these relate to each other. So starting with Luke 9, verse 1 to 6, it says, Summoning the twelve, they gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no travelling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and travelled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. So when we move on to Luke 10, verses 1 to 12, we find that it details the sending out of the 72 in mission. So it's went from summoning the 12 to sending out the 72. So it highlights that the mission's been multiplying. And when we read it, you see some similar sounding material, particularly for verse uh, 4 onwards. So it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and they sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, The harvest is abundant but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Don't carry a money bag, travelling bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest in him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go into the streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be even more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. So we see there's similar material, and it's obvious that something's happened during the course of chapter 9, that the amount of people following Jesus has increased, and the mission has multiplied. So the theme that's really emphasising is discipleship. And that theme's especially emphasised by verses 23 to 25 in chapter 9, in which Jesus tells us what it means to be his disciple. So it'll be up on the screen. Uh, so starting with verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So when we take all that into account, I know that's quite a lot, but you can divide uh, Luke 9 and 10 into three distinct uh, sections. So we've got the opening section, which is to do with mission. And that's Luke 9, verse 1 through 6. And then we've got the closing section, which is multiplied mission, which is Luke 10, verse 1 through 12. And then sandwiched between them is the theme of discipleship, which is Luke 9, 23, 25. So I thought this morning it'd be helpful to look at these three distinct sections of Scripture to ascertain what God might be telling us individually as a church as we look to be disciples who make disciples and uh, 2022. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting <coughs> over the cold a wee bit, so I'm a bit groggy. Um, 
So if we'll start with mission. So Luke 9, 1 to 6 is concerned with the missions of the disciples as they look to proclaim the good news and expand God's kingdom. And in verse 1 it says, Summon the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. So the first thing we notice is that it's Jesus that gives the disciples power and authority to act as ambassadors as they, as they send them out in mission. So what that highlights that is that our effectiveness in mission is not dependent on our own personal skills, our attributes, our qualities, or our knowledge. Our impact in mission is no self-determined, or not self-determined rather, it's God-determined. And I think that's important to note. And any effect we have in mission is dependent on whether we're dwelling in the presence of the Lord. It's not down to us. And I think that's important if you're struggling this morning or you think you don't have anything to offer the life of this church. Because it's ultimately God, through his grace, who empowers us according to his will to serve in his name. It's not down to us. So <clears throat> this point stressed me, uh, J.I. Parker, so I've got a quote I found for him that I quite liked that summed that point up. So it says, we must admit that we were silly ever to think that any evangelistic technique however skillful, could guarantee itself guarantee conversions. And this is the crucial point. We must learn to rest all our hopes of fruit and evangelism upon the omnipotent uh, grace of God. So it's, there's so much we can all be doing in service to the Lord. So I would say to you this morning, if you do wrestle with doubt or you lack confidence, please, please know you're not alone in that. Also, don't let that be a barrier to you serving. The Lord can and will use you to expand his kingdom. It's through his grace. It's not through you. And that's true for all of us, whether it's me standing here, whether it's Mark, whether it's Claire, whether it's Paul, whether it's any of us. It's all a God and none of us. You might recall Mark gave out a questionnaire of sorts a couple of months ago, eh, which asked us to examine our spiritual gifts. And that might be a good starting point if you didn't do that. Have a look through it. And what I would do after that, though, is I would speak to someone who you feel you can trust or you know well and ask for confirmation. You know, if you think you've got something to offer, speak that through with someone and they'll either say, I think you'd be excellent at that. Or equally, they might say, well, maybe about maybe you should try this instead. You know, so often we're blinded to our own strengths. We're often blinded to our own shortcomings as well. But I think first and foremost, what you must do is pray to the Lord and ask him how you can best serve him. And that would be my encouragement to you. And it's our individual and it's our collective responsibility to tell the people of Glasgow the gospel message. And sometimes that can seem daunting in a post-Christian society. It makes it tougher. But we can do this with the conf in the confidence that God is with us and he'll supply our needs according to his will. But if, only if we reach out in prayer and we remain obedient to his word. So everybody's got something to offer in here, and my encouragement would be to step forward. We've got a tremendous opportunities we get into next year. The workers are few, and the harvest is abundant. Well, I think we're the wrong way around, but you know, you know where I'm going. If you look at verse 2, it says, Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what makes it clear is that mission is twofold. We're to proclaim the kingdom and we're to heal the sick. It's got two elements. So the mission's got a, a, 
a spiritual dimension, but it's also got a social, physical dimension. So there's two elements to it. So it alerts us to the fact that any mission needs to be balanced. We need to share the good news of God's kingdom and look to rescue perishing souls from judgment. But we also need to be uh, concerned with meeting the physical and material needs of people facing adversity. Now I'm going to say something that's possibly uh, controversial. You know, there's times we can risk or we confuse or overemphasize meeting the temporal needs of other people at the expense of the gospel message. So I'm going to say something controversial, potentially. Jesus did not come to save the poor. And I'll repeat that. He did not come to save the poor. He came to save sinners. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. It's evident when you read the Gospels that Jesus was as equally concerned for the wealthy and the privileged as he was for the poor. And we see an example of this in the story of the rich young ruler. It's in Matthew 19, uh, 16 through to 26. So we should never confuse a demonstration of good works towards the poor as evidence that we're engaged in God's mission. So that's just not what it is. And I see so much of what I see in contemporary Christianity is a focus in meeting the temporal needs of other people at the expense of spiritual need. But when we approach mission in that manner, we offer relief, but never reconciliation with the Lord. We offer a momentary hope, but never eternal hope. But nevertheless, we must recognise that how we treat the poorest in our society is a reflection of what we're living by the values of God's kingdom. We cannot claim to be Christian and ignore the suffering uh, of those less fortunate. So to follow Jesus is to have a deep concern for the poor and the marginalised in our society. And the Lord makes that abundantly clear to us in Matthew 25, verse 40, when he says, And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So in that context, the least of them refers to the vulnerable, the poor, the sick, and the marginalised people of the world. So as we move forward into 2022, we need to remember that evangelism and social involvement are not mutually exclusive. We need to find a balance between both these aspects of mission. I found this quote from Tim Chester, who I think sums that up perfectly. I think it'll appear on the screen. He says, social action without proclamation is like a signpost pointing nowhere. Love demands that I be concerned for the temporal needs of the poor. But the most loving thing I can do for the poor is to tell them that they can be reconciled to God through Christ's saving work. So as we move into 2022, church family, please remember that balance is key. We need both elements. If we look at verse 3, it says, Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no travelling bag, no bread, no money. And don't take an extra shirt. So the Lord calls the disciples into mission without worldly distractions and to be dependent on God for their needs. And that's a really radical command. It really is. It compels them to give up any sense of personal security or identity to follow him. And in many ways, it's very reminiscent of the story of Abraham, who demonstrated unwavering faith and obedience in the Lord by accepting the calling to cast his worldly identity aside. So in some sense, the command to take nothing for the road can be considered a test 
of the disciples' faith and obedience in the Lord. But one thing I would stress is that it's important to make clear that the Lord is not calling the disciples to pursue an ascetic lifestyle as a spiritual practice. The command to leave everything behind is not universal and it's only given in particular mission contexts. So if we read Luke 22, verse 35 to 36, we see the Lord gives them the opposite instructions shortly before his arrest to prepare them for the trouble that lies ahead. So in verse 35 it says, He also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, travelling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now, now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a travelling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. So I think the verse is making it clear that the Lord is not calling us to abandon the material world for spiritual attainment. That would amount to salvation by works and mean that we're trying to earn favour with God. But the passages do emphasise that the Lord will have instructions for us as individuals and as a church as we look to proclaim his kingdom in Rudry. So we need to be attentive to what the Spirit might be telling us as we move to as we look to bring a gospel witness to Rudry. So I've got two questions for everyone, including myself. As a disciple of Jesus, what might you need to leave behind in your life to be effective in mission? And my second question is, as a disciple of Jesus, what might you need to retain or add to your life to be effective in mission? And that's something we need to pray on individually and corporately as a church. So the Lord doesn't ask us to abandon the world as disciples, but he does ask us to relinquish our sense of self or to let that go. And he makes that clear to us in verses 25, uh, through, uh, sorry, 23 to 25 of Luke 9. And we find that the denial of self is at the heart of discipleship, he says. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So before we, we look at that in a bit more detail, a couple of things, that's, a couple of general points that are worth highlighting. Uh, <clears throat> so the first thing is that this, this is a radical call from the Lord, but uh, what directly precedes it? It's Peter's confession that Jesus is Messiah and the prediction of his death. And that's in all of the synoptic Gospels. That's in Matthew, that's in Luke, and it's in Mark. And it, it follows the same pattern. So it suggests that once we identify Jesus as Lord, we're immediately called into discipleship. That's the expectation. But it will come at a cost. Like Jesus, we need to be willing to become servants by denying ourselves for the sake of others. And like him, we can be expected to be rejected and to suffer for it. That's the deal we're presented with, and that's the hallmark of discipleship. The second thing to draw your attention to is that the, the call from the Lord to discipleship is recorded in Matthew 16, 24 to 28, and it's recorded in Mark 8, 34 to 38. And that means that that passage of text is roughly located at the centre of each of the gospel accounts. So what we find then is that the heart of the three synoptic gospel accounts is a radical call from Jesus 
to follow him and engage in sacrificial, self-giving love. At the core of the synoptic gospels, we're told by the Lord that denial of self and embracement of the cross is the way to life. That seems important to me, that it's bang in the middle of those, those gospel accounts. So, as followers of Christ, we should all be asking ourselves where we stand in relation to that calling. Is your life as a Christian reflective in that calling? Or might still you have work to do in that regard? That's something we need to ask ourselves. But if you look at the passage in more detail, if you look at verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So that, that verse is the cornerstone of true discipleship. And it cuts to the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And it places two key expectations on us if we're determined to follow after him. If we're determined to follow after him. We're to deny ourselves and we're to take up our cross daily. So let's look a wee bit more closely about what's meant by that. So the first thing we're to do is to deny ourselves. So again, I would stress the call to deny ourselves is not a call to lead an ascetic lifestyle. We're not asked to make ourselves intentionally poor or to, or to forgo worldly pleasures as a spiritual practice. That would equate to his working for our salvation. It's at odds with the doctrine of justification. Rather, the Lord is calling us to abandon the love we have for ourselves and to redirect that towards the lost and the broken. We're called to be self-given, not self-indulgent. We're called to be sacrificial and not selfish. We're called to find our identity in Christ and not in the world. But we should not under underestimate the difficulties in leading a life like that. That's exceptionally difficult to deny ourselves wholly and completely for the Lord. That's something that we need to reach out for. That's something we need his grace for. When we look at our modern culture, one of the key aspects of it is that we're socialised to see ourselves as sovereign. The goal of life is to form an identity which is acceptable to yourself and the world at large. We live in an age where we're moulded to embrace ourselves, to love ourselves and to save ourselves. That's considered the main focus and achievement in life. The individual is now king and God has been rendered meaningless. And we've all been exposed to the cultural trends and norms. So it stands to reasons, it stands to reason, sorry, that our own heart might have been contaminated by the ways of the world, and it could be impacting our work with the Lord. We even see the potential for a contaminated heart in Luke 9 when we look at the, the, the actions of the disciples. Despite the fact that they've walked with the Lord, they've witnessed many miracles, even the transfiguration. They continually, continually fall short of the Lord's expectations and they engage in self-love. So in verse 38, Jesus rebukes them in response to their desire for greatness, which points to the folly of pride and a desire for status amongst the disciples. In verse 50, he rebukes them from prevent, preventing a person who wasn't part of their group from attempting to drive out demons in Jesus' name. And again, that points to a form of pride and a desire to be seen as special or somehow having higher status than other people. And we read in verse uh, 54 that the first instinct to the disciples is to destroy those who would reject the message of Jesus. He promptly rebukes them 
for their lack of love towards those who would stand against them. Power and control motivate the disciples. It's love and patience that motivate our Lord. And what was true for the disciples will most definitely be true for us. There's no getting away from that. So it's worthwhile always this morning considering to what extent our own hearts have been influenced by our individualised culture. In what way are the failures of the disciples, our own failures as disciples? So here's some questions to ponder. Are you in competition or envious of others in the church, your workplace, or any other area of your life? Do you really desire acclaim, status, or prestige in the eyes of other people? Is that something for your heart? It's on your heart. Do you feel special or better than other people for being a follower of Christ? or for any other reason? Or are your motives to help other people to be seen to be a good person, to gain a positive reputation in the eyes of other people? Is even your reading of the gospel contaminated by the need for self-glorification? In other words, do you read the stories to feel better about yourself or to build yourself up as an individual? So if the answer to any of that is yes, or similar type questions, then there's a need for each of us to approach the Lord in prayer and ask that we be sanctified from our love of self. We have to ask that we be put to death any notion that we can save ourselves by embracing the ways of the world and pray that we would be obedient to his word. We have to, live, we have to ask that we would not live by, as Martin Luther put it, the theology of glory, but by the theology of the cross. So the second thing we're asked to do is to take up our cross daily. So the concept of self-denial is at the heart of the Lord's teachings and discipleship. But he also asked that we would be prepared to share in his sufferings. And that's made clear by the statement that we should pick up our cross daily. And it's worth considering what meaning the cross has for us as 21st century Christians. Because I think our contemporary perception of it dilutes the meaning of that verse. It's likely when we look at the cross, we see hope, love, redemption. These are the types of things that swirl in our mind, and that's all true. But in the time of Jesus, the vision of the cross would have struck fear in your heart. You know, crucifixions were commonplace. It was very much an instrument of death, and it was the worst way you could die. So by referencing the cross, that's intentional by Jesus. He's really making it clear that following him, will have a considerable cost. It will have a burden attached to it. Um, so let's be honest, it doesn't really seem like an attractive offer. That's the deal you're presented with. It's not something you'll run towards. So we need to ask ourselves, what would the incentive be? Why would we take up our cross daily? So it's worth touching on suffering. It's something Mark mentioned on in, in Christmas Eve as well. And, um, when we look at the world and we see so much brokenness, so much tragedy, some it's inexplicable. And it could be easy to feel abandoned by God or confused when, when, when suffering comes calling. And we might wonder where he is in all the pain we feel, experience or see in the world. And I think I've shared before that one of the intellectual objections to Christianity and our culture concerns human suffering. It's a sticking point for a lot of people. When tragedy strikes or horrors unfold, people are apt to say that that God has abandoned them, or that he doesn't exist. And these objections relate to apparent contradictions concerning God's love and God's power. So some might say, if he's all-powerful, 
then he must choose not to prevent terrible situations from happening. And if that's true, then he can't be considered all loving. Conversely, some might say if he's all loving, then he can't be all powerful. Otherwise, out of love, he would intercede to stop terrible situations from occurring. So the fact that they do happen must, must mean that he can't stop them. So these are two attributes of God that people can have difficulty reconciling, and it might cause doubt or it might cause people to deny his existence. And I think if we're honest, none of us can really give a straightforward explanation for why tragedies happen or suffering occurs in life. It's, it's something that we all wrestle with, you know, difficulties explaining it. But as a Christian, what I can say with complete certainty is it's not because God is indifferent to our pain or that he doesn't love us. And we know that because God chose to share in our suffering. And I think we can never ever overlook that. You know, Christ walked the earth. He lived in poverty. He was rejected. He was despised. He was betrayed. He was abandoned by everyone who loved him. He was subjected to torture. And he died in the most uh, brutal way imaginable. So Christ was well acquainted with human pain and human suffering. And he endured all of that as an act of love. And what he asks is in verse 23 is to do the same. He asks us to do the same for others. That He asks that we would share in his sufferings and the knowledge, and here's the incentive for us, we would also share in his glory. He asks that we suffer together so ultimately we're glorified together in eternity. I mean, if you're suffering through that prism, it takes on a new meaning and it provides hope for the soul. And that's the essence of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. It doesn't say we run from them or we deny them or we try and find a way of getting out of them. He says we boast in them, we embrace them. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. And just endurance produces character, and proven character produces hope, a hope that will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So consequently, there's two key points we can take away when we combine the context of Luke 9, 23, with 25, with that of Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. So these two things. Love for others and embracement of the cross produces hope, a hope that will not disappoint. And love for others and embracement of the cross is the way to life. We are saved and will be glorified with the Lord. So church family, what I would say to you this morning is that the world needs hope and it needs life. And we've got a tremendous opportunity to bring this message of hope and life to the people of East End, provided that we all do the following as disciples of the Lord. We need to love our Lord. We need to deny ourselves. We need to embrace the cross and be obedient to his word. And that's a challenge for all of us. That's a challenge for me. And that's a challenge for you. And I wholeheartedly believe that if we embrace that challenge, and we'll grow, we'll grow as a church, just like we see at the beginning of Luke 10, verse 1 through 12, we will see a multiplied, multiplied mission in the east end of Glasgow. 
There's someone out there today who doesn't know Jesus. And I really believe that one day, many years from now, they may also tear a youngish looking uh, member of DVC, just like Margaret did, and I was saying youngish, uh, that DVC, DVC was the manuscript to their life. It's, and it's possible that you, as a disciple of the Lord, might be the first person to feature in the first sentence or the first paragraph of that person's human document. That potentiality exists if we accept the call to discipleship. And it's a gift from God to be able to share the hope and life found in Christ Jesus with another person. So my encouragement would be is to step forward and take that gift. Accept it. In a moment I'm going to close with prayer, but I just want to remind us a couple of things before I stop. The death of Jesus on the cross was the ultimate act of self-denial and love for others. The Lord climbed on the cross. He wasn't forced on it. He climbed on it so that we might be reconciled to the Father. He embraced the cross for us and he asked that we would embrace the cross for others. And that's the model of discipleship that's been set before us. It's a form of love that we are asked to emulate as we follow after Jesus, as we follow him. So I would ask that my prayer would be that you would reach out and ask the Father to shape your heart accordingly so that you might follow after our Lord without fear or hesitation. And I ask that for myself every day. If you're listening this morning and you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to accept his invitation to follow him. I would plead that you would accept the hope which is found in him by denying yourself and embracing the cross. That's the way to a life and a hope which will never desert you and it will never disappoint you. And if you have got any questions or there's a spark of curiosity, I would really urge you to contact the church and we would count it a blessing to speak with you. Let me pray, folks. Father, we thank you for your word and your faithfulness, that you have shown us all mercy and grace, that even in the midst of our failures and shortcomings, you have remained resolute in your love for us. Father, I would ask that in view of your mercy, each and every one of us would be led to serve sacrificially, that we would never be detracted from offering service to others as a consequence of ego, pride or self-interest. May humility be the cornerstone which underpins our service to others. Father, I pray that you would use our individual and our, our collective gifts to serve others so that we may come before your throne of grace. May our affection for others be authentic and not self-serving. May our love for others always be sincere and reflect the love shown to us by the Lord. Christ Jesus. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, folks.